Good day and uh, welcome to the Popco Business Unusual podcast. Today we have Clem Santa, the futurist speaker and author of Mind of a Fox. So um, joining us is Clem. Clem, how are you? I'm fine, you know, like everybody else. Um, you know, my life and the life of my family has been turned upside down by this uh, terrible pandemic. But, um, you know, um, hopefully we will all survive. And, uh, yeah, meanwhile, uh, one obviously has to look at, you know, what the, what the future might hold, uh, because it's certainly something that has, has never happened in my life before, uh, this complete turning upside down uh, of the world. So it is a huge event. I think that... Um... Keeping my ear to the ground, I've, I have very optimistic friends who have suddenly turned anxious, fearful, and looking at their computer screens, not knowing what to do or when to do it. There seem to be a lot of people looking for answers, guidance, a way forward, when it will end, how it will end, and what will the future be like. And, and so I thought it was really great to get the guru of the future onto the show to to certainly help people to identify possible scenarios that they could look at themselves. But what really interests me is that you've been doing this for many, many years now. I often ask myself, how did you get involved in, in future planning, scenario planning? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting story. I, I joined Anglo-American in 1966 in London. And I worked for five years in London as a management trainee and then was moved to Zambia uh, to work for the copper mines. <clears throat> and then I moved to South Africa in 1973. And um, I, uh, I, I was mostly um, with the gold division of Anglo-American. Um, and so I had a kind of regular mining career. But in, in the early 80s, I was the secretary of the Anglo-American Executive Committee. And our economist in London had heard about this Frenchman called Pierre Wack, W-A-C-K, who was head of scenario planning at Royal Dutch Shell. And he had actually captured both the first and the second uh, oil price shock in scenarios for Shell. And whilst they didn't uh, do anything uh, because of the first one, they invested quite heavily in oil stocks um, because of the second oil price shock scenario. They made a lot of money and Pierre became quite a legend in London. And we as the largest mining company in the world at the time heard about him and thought, well, if he can do that for oil, maybe he can help us with gold and with uh, diamonds and copper and, 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 and the things that we produce. So we asked him to come out to Johannesburg. Uh, in the early 80s, and he came and lectured our executive committee. And he blew us away, uh, not just by what he said, uh, but the way he looked. He looked like a futurist. He had hooded eyes. He had a goatee beard. And before he spoke, he said, can I light up? And we thought he was going to light a Gullawise, being French, instead of which he produced two incense sticks, lit them and played them under his nose and said, I think more clearly about the future if I'm smelling incense. <laughs> so we hired him on the spot. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he, he, he uh, 
became a consultant to Anglo um, until the mid-90s. And uh, the chairman, who's a guy called Gavin Relly, looked around the room uh, and said, Clem, why don't you look after this function in addition to your mining responsibilities? So I started in 83, and yes, I'm, I'm still uh, involved in the, in the field. And of course, the first scenarios we produced uh, were quite famous uh, because Pierre and his remarkable people helped our own team in Anglo-American to devise scenarios for the world and for South Africa. And the, the, the world one uh, was called Imperial Twilight, one of them was, which uh, anticipated the disappearance of the Soviet Union by the end of the 1980s. And of course it happened. It happened with Mikhail Gorbachev and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And for South Africa, we produced the high road of negotiation leading to a political settlement and the low road of confrontation leading to civil war and a wasteland. And it actually showed the power of scenario planning because when I went and did a few public presentations in the mid 80s on these scenarios, a lot of people said, how can Anglo send such a, a highly paid manager uh, on the circuit to, to, to preach about a fairy tale, which simply won't happen because there is no way the National Party will ever sit down with the ANC and negotiate the future. And, and they actually did, and they did it sooner than we thought. We thought it might be the mid-90s, but of course it happened with the release of Nelson Mandela in February 1990. An amazing experience I had was in January 1990, spending five hours uh, with the great man, uh, Nelson Mandela, in Victor Vestere, uh, where he was in a small cottage in the prison uh, because he wanted to understand the future. And so in, in, in certain ways, uh, the whole process of scenario planning helped change the conversation from a very negative one in the mid-80s in South Africa that we were all going to have a civil war to a positive one that if the right things happened, we could negotiate a settlement and get back in, into the world peacefully. And, and that's exactly what happened. And that's how I got involved in scenario planning. So it was, a, it was a wonderful sort of experience in addition to my normal mining responsibilities. So, I mean, did you, is there any challenges with scenario planning, do you see? Because obviously some people, like you said, are a bit um, reluctant. You know, they think you're crazy. You're either two off one way or two off the other. Um, I listened to one of yours the other day about the avalanche us going to junk, and that was four years ago, um, and we're there. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I then, just before I get to answer your question, I, I then had the good fortune to meet a young woman called Chantelle Aubrey, who was doing a thesis at UCT uh, on scenario planning uh, for small business, and uh, it was her executive MBA uh, thesis. And she showed it to me before she submitted it to her professor. And I said, Chantel, let's collaborate on a book. And so we wrote The Mind of a Fox. And, and we chose that because we wanted to get across to people the difference between a fox and a hedgehog, which was um, an ancient Greek poet called Archilochus wrote, the fox knows many things, whereas the hedgehog knows one big thing. And so hedgehogs are people who put forward one forecast of the future and they stick to it through thick and thin. They're, they're, they're totally inflexible. Whereas foxes have open minds and they play different scenarios, multiple scenarios. They watch the flags 
And as the flags go up and down, they change the probabilities of the scenario. So looking at the future is an entirely dynamic process. And so, you know, in the last five or six years, um, I've either had flags or scenarios which have captured the future. For example, in flag watching, which I wrote in uh, 2015, um, I had the pandemic flag and I said, I don't know when it's going to hit, but every century seems to have a pandemic. And we had the, you know, the, the, the Black Death and the Great Plague in Europe and Britain uh, way back when. And then we had the Spanish flu uh, last century. And therefore, we should be prepared for, a, for another pandemic uh, in, this, in this century. But at the same time, I said, Unfortunately, the world's moving into a gilded cage where the rich old millions, as I call them, who live in Europe and, 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 and Japan and America are, are building gilded cages around themselves so that they can protect themselves against the poor young billions. So we were already moving into a world which was closing up after the incredible globalization of the second half of the last century. And so... The pandemic flag has just gone up at a point where the world is incredibly vulnerable um, because that you've had the spat between China and America over trade. China's economy itself is slowing down because of the aging of the population in China caused by the one-child policy, which has now been converted into a two-child policy. But, you know, the world was already fragile. And then, boom, the, the, the pandemic flag um, has gone up. And yeah, um, we are, we're, we're, we're now in it, so to speak. So, I mean, for, for me, I look at what you've done and achieved, and I think it's amazing. And I, and I sort of wonder, can people learn it? You certainly learn it from the, from, from the great Pierre Wack. But Wack, yeah. But can we learn it? Could, is it? Is it something that every organization, every government need to invest in? Scenario planners. Is it something that should be taught at university, at schools? Yes, I, I certainly think so, because, um, you know, it's something we naturally do uh, when we're faced with challenging situations in our personal life. Um, when you're talking to somebody and you say something that you're a bit worried about, you're playing two scenarios that they will find what you're saying is acceptable or they'll find it unacceptable. So you're you're already playing in your mind what your response will be for those two events. Uh, so we actually use scenario planning every day of our life. When we play sport, for example, uh, you're, you're, you're wondering what your opponent's strategy is going to be. And if, if the opponent goes one way, you do one thing. And if it goes the other way, you, you do another thing. So this kind of flexible thinking that uh, is represented by scenario planning is, is, is something that we naturally do as human beings and all we've done is to elevate it into a sort of corporate uh a, a, a corporate tool and indeed you know after the mind of a fox we've we've done uh scenario sessions with thousands of businesses around the world um looking at futures of their markets and then obviously deciding what their best strategies are for each of those scenarios that they outline uh, for, for the markets. So, so it's not a very complicated strategy. It's just that most business schools like to teach strategy. <laughs> and that means 
a sort of hedgehog approach of having a vision and then, you know, the vision leads to a strategy and then you put key performance indicators in place to fulfill the strategy and it's very linear. And all we're suggesting is that there are so many unexpected things that happen in life and this pandemic is, is one of them. And uh, you have to have a more flexible approach and, and consider what you will do in extraordinary circumstances like the ones that we're in now. And I mean, you mentioned it, so I'm going to ask you more about it. But I mean, m many people look at things like education and a political system and feel that in many ways they're broken and they were possibly invented hundreds of years ago and they worked in that way where there wasn't immediate information. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, like I, I, I you know, I'm keep thinking back to the pandemic of 1917 to 1920, which killed between 50 and 100 million people in the world. So it was a it was a very nasty pandemic, that one of Spanish flu. Uh, but did the whole world come to a stop because of that pandemic? Uh, not really. Obviously, the world was recovering from the First World War. Um, but, um, you know, uh, things started up again. And then, of course, it was followed by the Roaring Twenties, where, you know, in America, um, all the young women danced the Charleston and wore cloche hats and, and all that kind of stuff. So in a funny way, what's really unique about this pandemic is the response to it uh, in terms of locking down the global uh, economy. I mean, it is amazing that just for markets to vanish overnight around the world and international travel and sporting events and, you know, empty city streets. That's, that's never happened before in, in modern civilization. So it's the response to the uh, pandemic which has created this unique situation. And do you think it's our inbuilt fight or flight sort of the fear-based thinking that's created this? Because certainly we're lacking information. We've got people testing, and that's increasing. But it seems to be different strategies. You know, Sweden's got one strategy, the States, the UK, Europe's sort of got a different strategy. What do you think is driving this response that's unprecedented? Well, you know, it's it, a lot of people have different theories about that. Uh, I think life has become more precious. Um, you know, probably in the last century, when there was a thing like Spanish flu, people shrug their shoulders and say, you know, particularly after the First World War, you know, life is cheap and uh, we must just get on as best we can and try and protect ourselves uh, from, from catching uh, the virus. Um, and that's the way it is. But nowadays, of course, you've got incredible media. And I mean, I don't think in my lifetime I've ever come across a situation where the media concentrate on just one story. There is no other story for the last month but the pandemic. So you've had this incredible publicity around the pandemic. You've got social media where people can talk to each other. You obviously, as I said, have a different attitude to, towards the, the, the preciousness of life. Um, and, and so it's led to this incredible um, turning upside down uh, of, of, the, of the global economy overnight. 
And, uh, and so, you know, one has to paint different scenarios uh, for your business or for your family because of education of your kids and things like that. You've got to, you, you, you've got to come up with what are the possible outcomes to the kind of scenario that we're in at the moment, which is, you know, a lockdown of the world economy, which obviously is coming to an end in, in quite a few countries. But, you know, where will it go after it comes to an end? <laughs> I mean, I, I look at this scenario and I, and I think of, and you mentioned responsiveness, and then you talk about the flexibility of the business schools that need to change. And it almost seems that um, people's responsiveness and flexibility is, is being challenged now. We, you know, we saw things like the oil prices going below zero. And, and, and when it happened, I text my brother. And, but then I woke up the next day and it almost felt normal where in any other situation, it would be like mass headline. Um, and, 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 and so there's almost that, is it, is this the way it's going to be that we need to respond quicker and be more flexible now? Like, are you finding with scenarios, you're having to adapt them quicker? I look at Warren Buffett. He did his first online uh, uh, shareholders meeting on Saturday and he did it virtually, which was amazing in itself. But if I look at some of, of what he's doing, he's, he's doesn't seem like he's reacting himself overly quickly he's still got that almost measured approach yeah and um you know i i i think that um as a, as a, as a, as i say um one of the the positive scenarios now which which i talk about in a, in a recent article i call tightrope it's where we're walking the tightrope out of this epidemic with two very nasty scenarios on each side of the tightrope uh the one is the, uh, what I call the camel's straw, where even though the pandemic isn't that big by the standards of the Spanish flu in the last century, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's still uh, um, not, not a sort of, uh, you know, a kind of 50 million deaths or anything like that. However, the, the economic disruption caused by this pandemic could be the straw that breaks uh, the camel's back in terms of lost markets and, and businesses that go under and, and the enormous amount of debt that uh, governments have taken on to, to try and um, open up their economies and provide relief for people who are not getting salaries and wages. You know, nobody's experienced uh, this before. And so in terms of picking up uh, the, the pieces and, and putting them together again, you know, most businesses are going to have to be incredibly creative because not only um, do they have to, you know, start making money again, but they're going to have to protect uh, their staff as best they can and their customers uh, from, from, from catching the virus, which is, which is still around. And so you're walking between this camel straw scenario of a, of, of a very nasty sort of depression like the 1930s on the one side of the tightrope, and on the other side of the tightrope uh, is the sort of Spain again scenario where you, you have a genuine pandemic which has a second or third wave and, 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 and kills millions of people. And, and between those two scenarios is the tightrope that the governments in the world, including our own in South Africa, um, are setting out on. 
to to try and you know minimize the the the, the, the damage to to health uh, caused by the pandemic, but on the other side, trying to open up the economy again. And it's a very difficult balance because there's just so many uncertainties around, particularly around about the virus. Is it is it a you know how how lethal is it? How, how many people have been infected? How many asymptomatic uh, cases have we got out there? Um, do do you do you develop immunity once you've uh, caught uh, this virus and and, and recovered? Um, there are just so many different things we don't know yet, and therefore. We're setting out down that tightrope in, 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 in a very uncertain way, and there's going to be wobbles. Uh, but uh, hopefully we don't fall into the, into the camel's straw scenario and completely wreck the global economy on the one side, and we don't fall into a kind of Spain again pandemic on the other side. So, so far, so good here in South Africa. I think Cyril's done a great job as sort of commander-in-chief and leading us into the lockdown. But now, of course... Getting back to a kind of uh, a, a new normal in South Africa with those five steps that he's outlined, and we've already moved from level five to level four, it's, um, it's going to be a very tricky business because, you know, lots of different things are going to happen. And so, therefore, you have to behave like a fox now where you're flexible and you have agility and, and all the things that foxes possess in order to negotiate the tightrope successfully. It's definitely some interesting times that we find ourselves in. And I mean, you know, the tightrope between the economics, I mean, I often look at sort of America and the UK and their interest rates basically zero. And I think Sweden and Japan, they have negative interest rates. And we've still got a little bit of a buffer with our current um, Reserve Bank policy. Do you see that changing? Do you see us moving to also a new normal of <laughs> zero interest rates? Is that is that part of the? I, I, is that I don't think scenario. I don't think so. I, I, I think that we will remain, uh, retain positive interest rates because the inflation rate here is higher uh, than it is in the countries that you mentioned. But as you were saying, we've had already some absolutely amazing. Uh, events like the oil price, you know, dipping to minus twenty dollars because, uh, you know, future future oil price because uh, people couldn't take delivery of the oil because um, there are, there isn't the storage capacity available um, either onshore or offshore uh, for that oil. So you have to pay to get out of a contract. Now, if you'd said that to anybody up to the moment it happened, they would have said that is unimaginable. But it happened. And the same goes in many ways for negative interest rates. It's certainly when I was being educated in the economics in the last century, nobody thought that you would, you would pay to put your money on deposit at a bank. And so, yes, these are extraordinary times. But um, I don't think that interest rates uh, will turn negative in South Africa. But they might go down uh, a little bit more. And sort of what would your advice be to... Like you got, you got. I've got three sort of scenarios that I saw. Is like you got one scenario with your your sort of startups, your entrepreneurs. The next scenario is with your bigger companies who 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 have got a lot of employees and and 
obviously the impact on society is big if they're releasing people or retrenching people. And then you've also got government's response because government, I think, is the biggest employee of people as well. So each of those three needs to act in accordance in different ways. What, what do you see the, what the possibilities for them? Is it different? Is it the same? No, it's not. It's, 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 it's different from all, for, for all three. You know, firstly, it's one of the really big points I've made for, um, yeah, for the last uh, 10, 15 years is the nature of work has changed. And whereas in the last century, people were employed in tens of thousands, if, if not more. I mean, in the gold mining industry, which I was associated with, we had 500,000 people in the gold mining industry uh, in the last century. You're never going to see those numbers again because of automation, robots, uh, artificial intelligence. And, and, and therefore, the real uh, cause of employment nowadays is small business and entrepreneurs. And that's why the United States has, a, before the pandemic uh, hit them, had an unemployment rate around about 3.5%, whereas Europe was stuck in sort of 5 6%, and in some countries, uh, 10%. And it's because America has, has a younger, more entrepreneurial population. So if we want to get back to a new normal in South Africa, it's going to be because we really, really put an emphasis on small business and entrepreneurs, not just in the, in, in the mainstream economy, in the townships, in rural areas. And we're going to have to set up supply chains which promote small business. We're going to have to have financing systems, maybe even kind of e-stock exchanges and stuff like that to provide capital for, for, for small businesses. It's, uh, if, if, if we want to get our economy going again, it's going to be in that direction. And the second big thing is going to be creating a smart green economy because that hasn't gone away. You know, we're all concentrating on the pandemic. But there was a terrible thing yesterday in the papers about how over a billion people could be living in parts of the world by 2070, which are too hot uh, to be inhabited. And... I actually think there's a certain truth uh, in that because I have done work in Australia and there's no doubt that in the centre of Australia, temperatures are reaching, you know, over 50 degrees centigrade. And, uh, you know, that's that's just too hot to handle. I've only once walked in 50 degrees and I can tell you it's very unpleasant. So, you know, we've got to do something about the environment. We're going to have to have a clean economy. We've got to reduce carbon emissions and, and we've got to not only do that ourselves, uh, through less international travel. We've got to buy goods which have uh, low carbon content. So we've got to construct a new economy which, which features entrepreneurship on the one hand and uh, which is a clean green economy on the other. And big business has got to obviously promote this as well in terms of its supply chains and helping uh, small business. And obviously one of the big challenges for big business coming out of this pandemic is to balance um, you know, work as usual uh, with what safety precautions you take. So, for example, are we ever going to have the kind of open offices uh, that we've had in the past with people sitting very close to one another? Or are we going to socially distance people at least until a vaccine uh, uh, comes along, if it ever does? Uh, what are we going to do in terms of customers in restaurants, in, in pubs? And, and how are we going to organise mass sporting events uh, where you have, you know, 100,000 people. All these things have to uh, be addressed. So it's, it's, it's an incredible change. 
that is going to take place uh, for big, big, big business and big events, as well as obviously the, the small retailers and, and restaurants. And as for government, government mustn't overplay their hand. You know, it's, it, we mustn't go back to controlled economies. That would, that would be the worst, because that's why America has done so well and it's the biggest economy in the world. And, and I can tell you right now that China is the second biggest economy in the world because the Chinese government uh, allowed Chinese entrepreneurs to get rich. And that's why in the 5G space, Chinese companies are doing so well. And uh, probably by the second half of the century, China will have overtaken America to, to be the largest economy in the world. So, you know, government's role has to be obviously education, law and order, uh, infrastructure. And, you know, I think one of their new roles has to be to promote uh, entrepreneurship all over the country and how people can buy and sell things to each other in a way that is um, not offensive for the physical uh, environment. Um, we've also got the sixth extinction of species going on at the same time as global warming. So we've got to do things uh, in a new way. So, I mean, when the president was rolling out the Million Jobs campaign, I, at the time, was concerned for two reasons. One, I just felt there was too much pressure already, existing pressure on big business to keep up with the new way of work. Um, we do a conference on the future of HR, and it's sort of very similar models of future of work. So that was the one side. And, and my, my thinking was really what we should be doing is trying to create a, a million entrepreneurs, not jobs. I, I think you, read, you said somewhere that every entrepreneur will create between three and five jobs. So in effect, if you focused on the entrepreneur, you're going to get five million employees, not the one. Um, so that was the one part, but I, I travel a lot to Asia and the East, and I, and I see there there's an entrepreneurial culture, and I think you've said the same in, t in places like Nigeria. And it's clear to me that at the moment we don't have that same level of culture here. And I, and I'm, and I, and I sort of wrap my head and say, oh, well, how do you create that sort of culture? And, and, I, and I felt like... It, we've got to start bartering on trading. And, and so when can you start that? I look at my kids and when they've got their school fairs, they're making things or they're selling things. And I see that entrepreneurial sort of spirit. You can see it comes out of them. They're selling their products with their friends and they're, and they're obviously making money for charity and whatever. But is that a place to start in the schools? You know, you say entrepreneurship, can you not link entrepreneurship and education in the same time and, and driving that? Are you seeing that as an opportunity? Yeah, and indeed, um, Chantel's uh, son, uh, 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 Mitch Ilbury, is, is running a program in several South African schools and, and a school in London called Growing Foxes, which, which is all about trying to you know, instill an entrepreneurial culture into kids so that it's not just having a market day in a school. You're actually teaching kids you know, about how to handle uncertainty and do all the things uh, that they're doing. So and it's going to take, and, and it's going to take time. Well, that, that's the thing. We, we've almost got to be patient in a way, but know where we're going, have some goals. I mean, is there? Is it? Do you do you feel that um, what what needs to be done? Because you, you're seeing some 
countries really driving entrepreneurship and some not doing it so successfully. Do you think government's role needs to change to drive that? I, I, I got the, the sense in South Africa that there's a lot of um, prestige with uh, premium qualification. So what I see is some very well-educated and highly capable people that we've trained up, people like Elon Musk. Many of the directors and CEOs of our organizations are world-class. But what I'm not seeing is this the same emphasis for entrepreneurship and celebrating those entrepreneurs. Yeah, I don't. Well, I certainly don't see the celebration of the entre, entre, uh, entrepreneurs. But what I can say is there is a lot of energy um, in our townships to create small businesses. And, you know, I, I used to visit quite a few of them and I was just overwhelmed by the energy. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of hidden from from the mainstream economy. And the thing that really I, I've said all along is that you, you can't have this kind of economic apartheid, which we have in South Africa, between the, the kind of mainstream economy and, and the kind of informal economy, which really does exist. And it's very lively, uh, but there's been no connection between the two economies. And that's why I feel so strongly that the government should be supporting the idea that the big business economy has to reach out and 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 get that informal economy uh, involved in the in the overall economy because there are lots and lots and lots of incredible examples. I mean, the one I quoted for years was um, I was the chairman of the Anglo-American Scholarship Panel, and. Um, we interviewed this uh, black student, um, and, and his name was Siobalela Zuza, and uh, he was for a scholarship. And we said, uh, you know, what, what, what have you ch chosen as a degree and why? And he said, chemical engineering. He said, because I, I, I developed this fascination for chemicals when I was 12 years old. I started mixing them in my mother's kitchen, causing minor explosions to our utter dismay. And then I focused on producing a rocket fuel. And it took me two years, and I, I did it. I assembled a South African team. We built a rocket. I put in my fuel, and we beat the South African amateur altitude record. And, and this whole project came to the notice of NASA. And uh, they, they, in turn, um, looked at the fuel, and uh, they, they named a minor, minor planet after me. <laughs> now, this guy was just 17 years old, and... Uh, he then met me three weeks later at Oliver Tambo, and I said, how's UCT? Because we gave him a scholarship to UCT. He says, you haven't heard. So I said, no. And he said, Harvard University have offered me a four-year scholarship, all expenses paid to study chemical engineering there. So that's where I'm going. And he had an incredible um, um, academic uh, um, experience there. And he visited the NASA facilities and met... Uh, uh, Barack Obama and Michelle, and Michelle Obama came one of his biggest fans, and he's doing very well. He's doing very well in terms of, you know, promoting uh, technology and business, uh, both here in South Africa and, and in the U.S. Now, there are lots of Siobhalela Zuzas around. It's just that they're not given the chance to uh, to thrive. And, and, and that's my point, is we've got to have, you know, the government as cheerleaders here. Um, making it, you know, the biggest thing of all, uh, that every year we've got to have, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 
businesses that emerge from uh, township conditions. Uh, people like Elon Musk uh, in Kailicha uh, or Soweto or, or wherever it is uh, that go on to become, you know, uh, worldwide innovators. Uh, it's it's possible, and and I just want to see that as the new normal in South Africa. And I mean, you you mentioned having like um, the regional JSEs essentially for these uh, township communities. Is, is something like that? Could that something like that be generated through things like stock fells? We we know in India when you're investing in women entrepreneurs and women businesses localized, that instead of paying interest, they... Absolutely. Another entrepreneur. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, you know, female entrepreneurs provide huge um, number of new businesses in India and in Bangladesh. And indeed, there are, there are banks which have been established which mainly lend to to female uh, entrepreneurs and um, you know we need some kind of initiative by our banking system to form maybe a separate bank which specializes in in, in loans to um, female entrepreneurs but I, I'd, I'd hate I'd hate to make it a gender issue but it's, it's a, so I would say to all entrepreneurs but it just so happens that in India and Bangladesh the main drive in the area of, of, of small business is is female entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know from listening to you that your 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 icon that you look at at most was, was the great Steve Jobs. Yep. <laughs> Steve Why Jobs. When I ask, well, I, when I ask people, I say, "Who is the human being that has most changed?" the life of people on this earth at this moment. You, you don't think of politicians. You don't think of Donald Trump um, or uh, Boris Johnson or uh, Angela Merkel. Those aren't the people who've, who've really changed our existence. The, pe the people who've changed our existence are the Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs of this world. And, and, and the thing that intrigues me about Steve Jobs was that he was an adopted child in, in, in America and he's father is of Syrian origin and uh, who, who, who met an American woman. And um, yeah, um, that produced Steve Jobs. And you know, that's what's so incredible about America is that, you know, it, it, it is a country of immigrants. That's, that's what's made America great is that they've just somehow managed to get these, these amazing individuals coming in from around the world and then establishing businesses, probably first, second generation, uh, establishing businesses uh, in America, which, which, which has worked. So that's why I'm, I'm very keen that we, you know, uh, attract uh, entrepreneurs from other African countries because there's plenty of ideas around on our continent. Um, and, 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 and that's the way to go if we want to create a successful economy. I don't like using the word industrialization because that implies last century stuff of big car factories, um, mm. big plants, um, and, and, and all that kind of thing. Whereas it's now about, you know, small businesses, bright ideas, and, 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 and connections. And I have to say, the one thing the pandemic has done is created a 
huge number of new online businesses uh, because of the fact that we've all been sitting at home. It's, it's, you know, our creativity buttons have been uh, stretched to the max. And I mean, you, you spoke about the, the, the politicians not being the sort of people that's going to, you know, change the world. But I mean, in, in terms of leadership, how important is that, do you feel, to our future? Yeah, um, I, and when I say uh, leadership, I, I, I was I'm more referring to technology then. Obviously, <clears throat> winning nations have strong leaders, and so leadership is is absolutely essential um, to to success. And in that sense, you know, I want our government now to show strong leadership in the, in in the direction that um, I've I've described. Um, because, I mean, Cyril does talk about inclusive growth and an inclusive economy. And, and that's all I've done is flesh out what an inclusive economy uh, really means. So, please, uh, you know, for me, it's everything that our president uh, actually gets on board and, and develops this direction um, after, after the pandemic. I have to say that, you know, I am worried uh, that Donald Trump has, has sent mixed messages uh, in, in his relationship with China and, you know, about the pandemic itself. Uh, the last thing you want is, is a leader that, that's, that's confusing. And um, in that sense, um, I think America has, has done extremely well. You only have to look at the, the stock market. Uh, uh, but but it's, it's not... I think being fired on by inspirational leadership, it, it just shows how strong the entrepreneurial culture is in America because they can now pretty much survive any leader um, unless that leader takes them into a terrible war or something like that. But uh, this pandemic has has really hit America. And so, you know, the thing that I mentioned in this article I recently wrote uh, on the tightrope uh, scenario I said, the one thing that's going to change is that defense is no longer just going to mean military prowess. Defense is going to mean having a strong public health system and providing all the equipment, uh, protective equipment and, and obviously hospital equipment that allows you to fight a war against viruses. It's not just about, you know, wars between humans anymore. This, this pandemic should be a lesson for all governments that they've got to have a strong uh, public sector, sorry, public health sector to survive the next virus. Well, I think health has become far more important role now. That's what we're seeing. But I mean, um, just going back to leadership quickly, I know that um, you, you, as an analogy, you, you look at um, someone like Sir Alex Ferguson as, as doing a lot for United or uniting United. Could it be argued that Jurgen Klopp is in fact a better leader? Sorry, who, who, repeat that last bit of the question. Could it be argued that in fact Jurgen Klopp is a better leader? No. <laughs> I love that question. Um, yeah, it's a shame that the pandemic. <laughs> and, um, I don't know whether Liverpool is still going to be awarded the uh, the, the, the league, and he is he is more consensual and cooperative than Alex Ferguson. So I don't like arguing, um, you know, about styles of leadership because it's funny how 
the world has produced very strong leaders who have very different uh, styles. But I thought Alex Ferguson was just superb uh, at the way he, um, you know, showed real authority. And, you know, when David Beckham uh, started getting stroppy in the changing room, you know, he'd, he'd throw a hairdryer or do something like that. We were, we were having uh, required. And, and so, so and, and, but, he, but, but he provided the, he provided the oomph uh, that Manchester United had. And you know what was really shown how incredible he was, was that when he went, they haven't won anything. <laughs> well, I they, were, think... they had the most trophies in, in sort of history for a, for, a, for, a, for a soccer team under his leadership. He went and that's it. And, and, and sure, they'll get another leader. And Jurgen Klopp, I would say, absolutely has transformed Liverpool. He's another very good leader. And, and I can tell you what, for me, comes out with him as a leader is his passion. His passion on the sidelines, you know, as, as he watches the team. Um, you can see that he is just totally involved. So, yeah, Ferguson was, was passionate too. But, but obviously, there are div different people. And one of the points I make if, I'm, if I've asked a question on leadership is you should, you should develop a leadership style which, is, which suits your DNA, your own natural character. What you mustn't do is read a book on management and then develop um, a style that conflicts with your natural DNA because somebody will find you out sooner or later and then you won't be seen as a genuine leader. I think that's actually what they asked Klopp. They said, how did you learn this? He said, uh, well, I didn't read a book about it. I, I just used my own sort of initiative and gut sense. And you almost get the same with Sir Alex as well. Obviously, Klopp yeah. was exposed to a bit more information at the time than, and a different culture possibly? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously different culture. Um, you know, they, they were brought, brought up in different countries. They, they, you know, were associated with different teams. And yeah, but that's not the real point. Uh, the, the, the real point is that we are all individuals in the end uh, with our own sort of balance of, of genes and character. And, and that's why, um, you know, leaders can come in all shapes and sizes and be very, very effective leaders if they, you know, can turn their natural composition into something that <clears throat> can influence other people uh, to follow them. So, I mean, Clem, you played in a rock band with, with the Rolling Stones or not? Is that true? Yeah, no, that's true. I, I didn't play, you know, inside the Rolling Stones at all. Mm -hmm. I, I, I played at school. Uh, we, we had a, I was a place called Winchester College in England yeah. um, in 57 and 63, and we had a school rock band. In fact, it was the first rock and roll band at uh, Winchester. And then a friend of mine and I went and played in Paris after we left Winchester. Wow. We played in a Parisian restaurant. Um, and then we went up to Oxford together uh, in 63, late 63. And in 1964, um, we, we'd already become popular uh, playing at, at, on a Saturday night at um, one of the one of the clubs uh, in Oxford, and we were the sort of regular feature on a, on on a Saturday night. And uh, Magdalen College, uh, one of the colleges at Oxford, had its summer ball in June '64. And uh, 
on the on the program, uh, they had the Rolling Stones, um, and the Rolling Stones weren't doing a cabaret; they were actually playing for people to dance to, uh, because they were an up and coming London band. And and we were we were on the same uh, program in the nightclub uh, as a twosome, Clem and John, uh, playing um, you know playing playing for people to dance to in a more romantic way. And so we can say we shared we shared a program. We shared a gig, sorry, with with the, with the Stones, and you can get proof of it if you if you Google Bonhams, uh, which is an auctioneer. <laughs> Bonhams, uh, you can get a program that was signed by the Rolling Stones, and you oh, just wow. put in Rolling Stones, nineteen sixty four, Magdalen College, M A G D A L E N College, and you'll and you'll see the program signed by the Stones, and you'll see Clement John. <laughs> you still play? Still play, yeah, oh yeah, play the odd uh, uh, gig, uh, not uh, for money or anything like that. Just uh, when I'm asked to by friends for parties and and stuff like that. You don't lose the techniques. I, I was never a really good guitarist. I was uh, a rhythm guitarist, but I can still play all the chords and sing the old songs, and it's it's fun. And you, you and for me, music is part of life. You know, it's 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 important to to. Uh, to, to, to not only do what you do, which in my case is scenario planning, but to, to have other pursuits at the same time. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you've, you've, you've been a student, you've been in a band, you've been in the mining industry, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're a futurist. For young people now who are re-looking at their careers, what, 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 would, what would you do differently if you were them now? Or would you do anything differently? Well, you know, the, the, the point I would make is particularly now, and I didn't get, you see, this is why any answer I give has to be qualified by the fact that I'm going through as surreal an experience as anybody else out there who's listening uh, to our conversation. Um, it's just never happened to me before. Um, but... A situation like we have at the moment creates a lot of opportunities as well as the threats and the risks that we talk about posed by the virus and by the fact that the economy is in such bad shape. And and so if I was young today, I would be sitting down and writing out a list of my what I considered my strengths and weaknesses and my, my particularly my passions uh, are in life and so forth and so on. And then kind of playing a scenario of what the global economy could build up into over the next two years in a new way that allows people to socially distance from one another and to, uh, and, and to obviously minimize the risk of, of, of catching the virus if it comes back in a second or third wave. So you know, life is going to change. That's why I talk about the new normal. You know, it's it's going to change. And, and change always leads to new opportunities. So I would be kind of matching my kind of strengths to whatever opportunities there might be that are coming up. And, and they are going to be huge. I mean, just take, just take the way you run an office. There's going to be so many different things about running an office, whether you have... Uh, people coming in 
during the day at different times to try and uh, distance them. You know how you're going to set up the whole architecture of the of the office. Um, how people are possibly going to work from home for two or three days a week, and how they're going to uh, communicate with the office. So there's going to be a whole bunch of service industries out, out there um, making sure that this happens in the most effective way, which just didn't exist before uh, the pandemic really struck. Because you know, I'm not sure how quickly we're going to get a vaccine. Um, you know, you talk to scientists, they talk about 12 to 18 months. And, and some scientists say this is a clever virus. You're not going to see a vaccine. I mean, we still haven't got a vaccine for HIV AIDS. And that's been around since the early 80s. We, we haven't got a vaccine. Uh, so there are things which, which you know, uh, are, are too clever for, for us human beings. And, and I don't know whether the coronavirus is or not. But in the meantime, we are obviously going to have to manage risk uh, working and we're going to have to manage risk with customers and, uh, yeah, manage risk in, in all aspects of our life. So if I was young, starting out, I would say, what am I good at doing and how can I match that to the kind of opportunities that are available in this new normal I mean, I know that you're talking about the new way of working and the job for life and, and sort of getting a good education, getting a job. Those that, that sort of those days are over and, and now it's around students creating companies or skills for themselves. How do you see that playing out? If I'm a young person, I'm thinking I've got to create a skill. How would I do that? What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that um, obviously at school, it'll be uh, a skill developed, you know, in the normal uh, curriculum. Um, but, 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 but obviously I would be suggesting to uh, people at school, if I was, if, 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 if I was um, uh, doing uh, talks for them, that they've got to learn, you know, how to look at the future like a fox and, um, and particularly play different scenarios of what their careers could be like and who are the big players for the different careers that they're playing scenarios um, about. Um, if they're opening their own business in a particular field, um, I would be also asking who are the players, particularly who could they go to in their family to raise money? Um, have they developed a marketing plan? Are they going to approach... Um, potential customers to see whether it's a feasible business. I'd be t taking them through all that. And obviously people who are um, at university or, or who've just left university, um, I, I, I would be saying, you know, how can you use the sort of general knowledge that you've gained at university? Um, if you've done a, an arts degree uh, like I did, I did PPE, politics, philosophy, and economics. How can you use that general knowledge to good effect in terms of making money um, in a particular business? But obviously, if you study to become a doctor or an engineer or, you know, something where there is a very obvious career opportunities associated with the degree you've chosen, you can then obviously look in that particular field. And... Um, one thing I'd say at the end is 
don't believe that everything you plan in life actually happens that way. Because when I finished Oxford um, in 1966, I had my degree. I went down to Cornwall and I needed a crew for a, uh, a dinghy race in a place called Rock, which is uh, just next door to Port Isaac, where uh, Doc Martin was filmed. <laughs> and um, and uh, I needed a crew, and there was uh, a, a, a young lady uh, sitting on a wall outside the pub, and I said, come and crew for me. And she crewed for me, and then she said, well, why not come and have dinner with my parents? Um, and so I went back and had dinner with her parents, um, and her father was managing director of Anglo-American in London. And he said, why don't you come up for an interview? <laughs> oh, well. So I did. So I did. And um, I went up to London. I was interviewed, and I got the job. And that was in 1966, November 66. And guess what? I'm still involved with Anglo-American. And that's uh, 50, 54 years uh, later. And, and so the idea that everything is perfectly programmed in life is, is rubbish. If I hadn't actually asked that uh, young lady to, to crew for me, I would have had a totally different life where I would have probably stayed in England, maybe gone into academia, done something different. So all I say to young people is there are always crossroads in your life. Everybody has crossroads in their life. And, and the real talent you have to have is to recognize that it is a crossroads and then take the right road at that crossroads. <laughs> And, and so, you know, there is no perfect answer. But, you know, life, life for me uh, was full of these type of crossroads. And you've just got to, to recognize this is another turning point and which way should I go? And then obviously choose, choose the way to go. I mean, you mentioned now that there's a lot of opportunities for young people. And then you also talk around... You know, you could have stayed in England. And I think there's a lot of people the last couple of years, a lot of families. I had a brother who's moved back to the UK. And there's a lot of people who were making that a part of their decision to move that way. And, and, and my father believes that this is the country, this is the continent where the opportunities are going to be the greatest. I mean, you're, you're saying we don't quite know. What's your sense? Um, no, well, I, I'm never, I've never had ne never any regrets about leaving uh, the UK. Uh, I actually came out to Africa in 1971 to Zambia and then down here to South Africa in 73. And I have absolutely no regrets because I think that I've led a much more exciting and, uh, yeah, satisfying life here uh, than, than I would have done in, in, in the UK. And, um, you know, I was, I just feel that the UK um, is, is up against it. I mean, you know, there's Brexit happening just at the wrong moment, I have to say. Uh, moving out of Europe uh, just at this moment is not a good idea, you know, because it's going to be in big, big disruptions for business. On top of that, I'm afraid to say that uh, the UK hasn't come out well from this uh, pandemic in terms of the preparations made. And, 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 and which has led to, you know, a, a, a very large number of cases um, and, and, and deaths. Um, and, and I think their economy is going to, to be, you know, pretty hard to rescue. So, you know, why, why is the African continent a good place to be? Because, you know, it is probably the, 
the continent with the youngest population uh, in the world. Um, everybody has said that this particular pandemic uh, doesn't affect young people like it affects old people. Um, and so, yeah, I think that Africa can recover a lot quicker uh, than Europe and Britain. Um, and so, yeah, um, I, I, I continue with my, my, my faith in this continent um, because, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're the leaders. Uh, we, we've still got the most sophisticated uh, economy in, in Africa, and that includes Egypt and all the ones in the very north. Um, and we've just got to use our position as the sort of leading economy in, in Africa um, to, yeah, to, to spread our, rings, our wings across uh, the continent. And there's lots of South African businesses that have done well elsewhere in Africa. And I think it's not just us who are going to be changed by this pandemic. It's all the other African countries. And if there's one thing which I think will probably occupy a much bigger role uh, in the future of Africa, it's the African Union. And so, you know, um, I, I, I personally feel that, um, that it's much better being here uh, than being in the UK or Europe at the moment. For sure. And I mean, what, what we see is we see a lot of like Germans and Europeans coming to South Africa for the lifestyle. I mean, with the way things are changing with work and technology, you know, some people are worried about property prices because maybe, you know, commercial uh, property won't be used so much. What are, you, what are you seeing with property in general? We know it's at a, a low point at the moment, but do you see it fundamentally changing and people more moving to rural areas? Or do you see it was, it was very much based as an asset class for the last sort of 30 years, and a wealth accumulation tool? Yeah, it was, and, and, and still is. Um, um, you know, people say that you should have some of your wealth in property, some in shares, uh, some in bonds, some in cash. You know, you should be diversified across different assets and different currencies, and that still stands. But is the property game going to be changed by the pandemic? Yes, it is. And I think one of the things which is going to come up is that a lot of people will want to live um, outside urban areas because you know, what's happened in New York has shown that you know as soon as you have large densities of people um, in London, as soon as you put large numbers of people on tubes uh, commuting into London, um, you, 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 you've got a higher risk. You've got a higher risk of infection from any future virus. So I actually do think that in the long run, our lifestyle... Um, is going to is going to be changed, and um, you know we're going to have an even more decentralised um, um, life uh, than 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 we have now, and and so you know I do think that um, property prices will 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 reflect this. When you get on to retail and things like shopping malls, I'm I'm not so sure because you know a lot of people find. It's very convenient to go to shopping malls, and uh, and so I, I you know, I'm, I I can't tell you what the uh, future of, uh, of of shopping is, but I've, I've got a feeling that they will remain uh, quite uh, resilient. 
but certainly, I think where people choose to live uh, is going to be different. And then on top of that, I think that companies are going to try and come up with a mixed model on working from home and working in the office and probably have less people um, or, you know, need less office space because they've, they've come to a kind of new uh, work uh, model uh, incorporating um, at home with the office. And so, yes, there, there are going to be some major changes uh, in the property game as we uh, come out of the pandemic. Sure. There's so much more I want to ask you, but I'm, I'm also um, think, thinking of your time. And um, I mean, I mean, at the moment, I suppose you know we're, we're in a situation where we don't we got these different scenarios. What what are the key markers that you would be looking for for the future? Well, you know, I wrote an article um, for News 24 before, you know, well before the pandemic. I wrote it last year called A Tale of Two Centuries. Um, and I was comparing this century with the last century. And, um, and I did mention a possible pandemic in that article too. Um, I, I think I wrote it in January last year. And um, I basically said the the real driver, and, and I kind of referred to it earlier, is firstly the relationship between America and China because, you know, they are the two largest economies in the world. And just as the 19th century belonged to Britain and the 20th century belonged to America, this century could well belong to China in the end. And so the relationship between America and China going forward is 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 very very important and i'm i'm just sad that it's so yeah it's it's so confused at the moment and you know there are accusations being made by america about the way china's handled the virus and uh and and you know uh the way the way that they've managed to sort of get control of it very quickly but america has not it's, it's created the kind of tension between the two countries that you simply don't need when um, you're wanting the whole uh, global economy to recover. So that is an incredibly important flag uh, to watch um, over the next um, uh, two years. Uh, the, the, the second thing uh, to watch is the level of inequality because the great financial crash of 2008 um, didn't didn't uh, affect the super rich very much because the stock markets recovered, everything recovered. And the only thing that happened was that the middle class and the working class did not get the kind of salaries and wages uh, that they got to pre-2007. And so you have this enormous inequality in the world, which has really come across in this pandemic with the number of people who've had to wait in food, food queues because they haven't got any savings. And, and, and I, I think it's an amazing number of people as a proportion of, of even the rich nations, maybe 80% have no savings at all. And that's, that's why this pandemic has been absolutely ghastly uh, for them because they haven't got the money. And so I think that ways of trying to make the world more equal um, for, for all the people who uh, live on the planet is, is, is going to be a very big deal. And then, as I said to you earlier on, the, the, the climate 
uh, change. And the fact that this is the century where we, we look at ourselves in the mirror, because it's not going to be next century, it's going to be this century that you're going to see extreme weather conditions if we don't change the way we live in terms of carbon footprint, but also in the way we stop displacing other species on this uh, planet. That's going to be a third major flag uh, to, 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 to watch. And then, of course, there's always a chance of another war or something like that. Uh, but, um, you know, touch wood, um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that that, uh, that threat for the time being um, has, has gone away. But it's, uh, it's yeah, this, this, this event, this particular event is, is going to go down as one of the big game changers of this century. For sure, I think so. I, I, I kind of agree with you there. Um, yeah. It concerns me a little bit that I listened to Warren Buffett this weekend and he presented his shareholders meeting. I haven't been to one, so I've never seen him before, but I follow him quite closely. And the, the, the commentator was saying, why hasn't he dipped in and bought any businesses? He's got a lot of cash. And then he sort of brought up his own childhood and he said when his father was laid off in the 1929, nine months later he was born. At that point, if we invested $1,000 in the U.S. stock market, two years later it would have only been worth $170. In other words, the U.S. stock market recovered initially from the recession, and then there were, there's a big run where it lost 83% of its value. And I can't help but think, is he not moving in the market because he sees that coming? Are we going to see a sort of blended entrepreneurial stroke socialistic new way of governing countries that's going to pop up? And of course, the last sort of question is, a lot of this, a lot of what you predicted requires people to change and people change for different reasons. But one of the things we know is that you can't make someone necessarily change, but it's normally these sorts of incidents that bring around change. Do you think there's the appetite to change enough at the moment? Well, let, let me um, answer about Warren Buffett first before, before you get to this. Interestingly, um, I have a friend who went to one of his meetings, Warren Buffett's meeting, and the, what he said was, was that what he remembered was not old Warren Buffett, but in driving from the um, airport to stay at a hotel and then going to the meeting, was that virtually all people in Omaha don't have just one job. They have two or three jobs. He talked to the taxi driver who said that weekends he serves in a in a, in a, in a Big Mac restaurant. He, talk, he talked to the, the landlady where he was staying and she has several other jobs. He said that was what left him with the feeling of, of America is different in that people are entrepreneurial. They, they, they don't, it's not just one job, one career or anything. It's that you're doing um, several, several things at once and, 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 and then if that comes to an end, you replace it with something else. It's, it's that kind of cre crea creativity in, in making, making a livelihood for yourself that, uh, that, that we need uh, here. Um, and then on that point that Buffett made about um, the, the stock market crash, is, he's quite right. It didn't, it, it crashed. We all talk about the Wall Street crash in 29, but, but, it, but it really crashed in 32. That's, that's when it, 
seriously fell. And um, can that happen again? Well, you know, that's why I wrote the camel straw scenario, because, you know, we haven't seen any of the real life statistics yet coming out of the pandemic. I mean, I hear that the unemployment rate in America could go through 20%, which for America is enormous. Um, mm. And we'll have to wait and see if that happens. But if that and terrible manufacturing data and the fact that we have a second wave of the pandemic or, or something else, that could lead to yeah, a, 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 a massive crash in the market. But I'm not saying that people should therefore divest and go and put all their money in cash. If you're a fox, you keep yourself diversified and, and, you, and, and you, you try and have a formula so that even if there is a, a, a terrible event in part of your portfolio, you, you can survive. So all I'm saying is that that's why with the camel straw scenario, the flags are all around the, 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 the mega economic data coming out of the United States and Europe, because we haven't seen anything yet. We, 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 people are just trying to sort of settle down. Mm. And, and, and so Buffett's point is a very powerful one, because as I said, people talk about Wall Street crash, but they don't talk about the crash of 1932, which is when it went down to its, its lowest level. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, in, in, in terms of, you know, uh, what, 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 what we all can learn from that, it's that, um, you know, uh, people did survive the 1930s. They, 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 they survived. And, and the terrible thing was they fought another war uh, in the 40s having been through the, the wretchedness of the 1930s. And I have to say, the one thing where leadership came in was uh, Roosevelt with the New Deal. I mean, and people are saying you, you now need a new New Deal in America, which you may well need. And in that sense, governments are going to play a bigger role. And I don't think that all those who argue, you know, that, that, that successful societies rely on very small government and, 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 and retaining economic freedom. I, I mean, I don't think they, they get the point of how important it was for Roosevelt to intervene in America in the 1930s, because when it went to war uh, in, the, in the 40s, it was back to being a fairly strong nation again. And I think the same will apply um, with, 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 this, uh, with this particular uh, virus that... Um, you know, governments are going to have to play a very important role. And, and I know that the other side will say, oh, this is socialism, reborn socialism. But it's, but it's not. Not if you're putting the real emphasis on entrepreneurs, small business and innovation um, and, 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 and on the individual rather than the collective. That's, that, that's, that for me is, is important assistance from the, from the government. Mm. Um, and of course, it does carry the risk that some governments probably carry, um, you know, um, socialist uh, socialist beliefs and, and want to use the opportunity to impose some of them. But, you know, why did China become the second largest economy in the world? And the reason is it abandoned communism. <laughs> it's still a one-party state. No, it's, not a, it's not a democracy yet. Uh, but it did abandon uh, communism and um, and and allowed small business to 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 flourish. I did a, a session in 
2006 in Beijing at the Central Party School. It's the inner sanctum of the Chinese Communist Party, and they wanted to understand scenario planning. Um, and they showed me around the school afterwards, and it, what was really interesting was that all the slogans of Mao Zedong had been taken down from the school, even though it was the sort of heart of the Communist Party, and replaced with slogans of Deng Xiaoping. And I said to one of the professors who showed me around, why, why, why have you done this? And he said, because when uh, Deng came into power in 1978, we were the 100th ranked economy in the world. Now we're number five, and of course now they're number two. And he said it was because Deng took, uh, made two very important decisions. He said, I'm going to build a strong infrastructure platform for business, and then I'm going to give business freedom to create wealth. And that, 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 that pair, of, pair of beliefs is why we are where we are today. So there's nothing wrong with strong government intervention, providing it is to support small business and wealth creation and, yeah, and, and provide the platform, which means education, health, and physical infrastructure so that business can thrive. I was I was um, a little bit bored at the initial parts of the lockdown, and I found myself going to Netflix and looking at um, some of the uh, philosophers. And well, there's a bit of a series, and I and I saw like Confucius and Socrates, and 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 obviously Confucius was was highly regarded, and he had sort of one belief was that the the, the strength of a nation is equal to the strength of a family. And Socrates was really about just asking challenge um, questions, like challenging ideas, I suppose, in a way, what you do. And I can't help but think both of those two elements are relevant right now. You know, if I look at us as a family, we've got three boys that stay here. I'm entwined in their lives now more than I've ever been. It is one of the great things about the lockdown is that it's given me a chance to you know, put on track our relationship with our children again and get to know them even better than sort of the nine to five when you're at work or whatever it is, the six to eight when you get home. Um, and obviously asking questions and challenging ideas. I think every idea that we've had is currently being challenged right now. We're, we're asking really critical questions about ourselves, our society, the way we do things. We're challenging everything almost now. Yep. And certainly this whole question of work-life balance is being challenged everywhere. And, you know, a lot of celebrities who said, I hadn't realized that home could be such fun uh, because I spend most of my time making movies or doing this or that and traveling the world. And so absolutely. Um, the, I think a lot of people are going to question um, their whole role as, as a mother or father and, you know, the, the relationship with the family um, as, as, as a result of uh, this uh, lockdown. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's not just business. It's it's everything to do about life. Um, that that we 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 will develop a new normal for. Well, I suppose, like you said, we're realizing how precious our life is. That's what that's why we've reacted so quickly. <laughs> yes, but uh, you know, I I've, I made the point that you know it's 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 what meant that the lockdown happened, you know, because I get lots of people moaning about the fact that the lockdown happened and they said we should have, we should have actually gone on with business as usual and so forth and so on. Um, 
and and my argument is 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 very simple that that is now irrelevant we've we've had the biggest lockdown in the history of the world <laughs> probably uh, in terms of the global economy and 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 so you've got to look at the positive and negative scenarios that flow out of uh, easing the lockdown and that's why as i said i think the best analogy uh, is uh, walking the tightrope um, because it is a tightrope uh, between you know not losing unnecessary lives but on the other hand um, economic revival and best of luck to everybody who's starting out down that tightrope Clem, thank you so much for your time. It was absolutely amazing and lovely to get your insights and learn about your career with the Rolling Stones in the rock band. <laughs> well, I'd like to say, Ralph, I've learned a huge amount from this conversation from, from you. And so, yeah, like a fox, I'm going to take some things away, particularly that whole point that you made about Buffett. And uh, because I hadn't sort of put the two and two together. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I, 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 I'll end with a, a, a benediction for you and your family and, of course, all the uh, people who've allowed this uh, conversation to take place. May the fox be with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.